0: I'm feeling a little jittery this morning. As you can imagine, most speakers feel a little shaky when they get up here. But I realized when I was coming up, I was feeling a little jittery because Jenny and I are going to miss you guys so much. You have meant everything to us. You do not understand the life change that we've experienced here. So I want to thank you for that. So if I blow this sermon, it's because I love you. So (laughs) I want you to know that. Thank you guys for what you've done and what you're going to continue to do when God takes us up to Indiana (sighs) For some reason Every once in a while life goes well and you can't explain Why it confuses you it actually makes you a little bit nervous a couple of months ago my life was going really really well and it was starting to scare me, and then I got a letter in the mail. Thank goodness, life stopped going so well. (laughs) A jury summons. And so, two weeks later, I showed up to the Dallas County Courthouse, and I came to what was called the jury pool room, and it's about four or 500 people in there, and they give you a number, and you wait, and you hope, and you beg that your number isn't called. My number's called. So then I'm escorted to the jury panel room. Jury panel room, there's about 30 people in there. And you sit, and the lawyers for the case that's coming up, they start riddling you with questions because they're trying to deselect you. They're trying to decide who they want to be on the jury and who they don't. So they ask you a bunch of questions, and then they send you out, and then they bring you back in, and, and they read the names of those they've selected, and you hear the names, juror number one, so-and-so juror number two, so-and-so three, four, and this whole time, I'm thinking to myself, the sign of an intelligent person is their ability to get out of jury duty. <laughs> juror number five Kevin McGill. So I'm selected to serve on jury duty. So they send us out, and they, then they send us right back in, and we all sit in chairs like this, in the juror's box. Now this whole time, the lawyers are asking us questions regarding the case, and it's questions about drug possession, it's questions about illegal firearms. So We recognize, we we can begin to put together a profile of who the defendant will be. And to be honest, I began to paint a picture. I imagine he was in his early 20s, maybe baggy clothes, tatted up, kind of looked like a hardened criminal. So we sit in the juror's box, and sure enough, out come the lawyers, and there he is. He's in his early 20s, he's tatted up, baggy clothes, And he looks like a hardened criminal. But then he looked right at me. And I saw something else that I didn't think I'd see. I saw a little boy who was lost. I saw a little boy who didn't know how he had gotten there. And yes, he probably made some mistakes. And yes, there was a reason he was there. But at the same time, he was completely confused and afraid. Sometimes there's more than what we see, isn't there? And not just in our society. There are people that we look across the room for a juror's box and we think of them as spiritual criminals. And we do this, right? We, we, have, some, we have our columns. We, we meet a few people, and because of the way they act, the way they behave, the way they talk, we put them in the spiritual criminal column. But then there's another column, and they're nice people. They're really nice to be around, and they're nice neighbors, and they're nice bosses, and you just think, oh, they, they'll be a nice Christian, don't you know? But Rahab, the prostitute, will show us today that there is more than what we see. Turn with me to Joshua chapter two. Now before we get actually to the story of Joshua chapter two, I wanna tell you the story behind the story. I wanna tell you the prequel, how Joshua and his generation got there. Really quick, Moses leads Israel out of Egypt. But they disobey, and they refuse to follow God, and they worship other gods. And so um, God says, I'm angry with you. You cannot go into the land of Canaan. But I'll raise up another generation, a better generation, a generation that will follow my rules and do what I tell them to do. And that next generation is Joshua. Joshua. Upstanding citizens. They follow God's rules. They do what He says. In fact, the book of Joshua, chapter 1, it starts off in verse 7. It says, God uh, says to them, Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. Just follow my rules. Just do what I tell you. That's what God is saying. Follow the, follow the rules. And there is actually one law through the book of Joshua that will be very, very, very important. Deuteronomy 7. And it actually comes up a lot in Joshua. And the law is chapter 7, verse 2 in Deuteronomy. And when the Lord God gives you them over to you, this is God's marching orders for the Israelite army as they go into Canaan. And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. And that's actually a catchphrase, a little idiom there. The, the word in Hebrew is karam. Say karam. Say karam. All right, you might want to get that checked out. You shall make no covenant with them. No in Hebrew means low, low means no. Hebrew scholars, no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. No contract. No contract with them whatsoever. That is the ruling law when they walk into Canaan. Chapter 2, verse 1. Joshua. And Joshua, the son of Nun, Sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies saying go view the land especially Jericho And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there So now really quickly quickly as spies go a good spy goes into a land and they're able to get information They're able to leave if you're a good spy you don't get caught That's, that's just good spy rules in verse Two, it says, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Two verses in, the spies are caught. They're not really good spies, just to let you know. But then we meet Rahab. Verse three, then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman, who had taken the two men and hidden them, she said, well, yeah, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out, and I do not know where the men went. Now she's tricky. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them. So what she's saying here is, oh, well, you know, I, I, you know, they were here, but I don't know why they were here. But if you go through the city gates, you can follow them. What she knew is at sunset, the gates closed. And, this, and the king's men would follow them. They couldn't get back in. Essentially, she was buying the spies time, giving them time. The reason this is important is because as a reader, you begin to think, huh, she's just not a Canaanite. She's just not a prostitute. Maybe there's something a little bit more to her. Maybe there's more than what we see. So, So the men go out the gates, and they chase after the spies. Woohoo! So the men pursued after them out the way to the Jordan, as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Now, verse 8, before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, and this is beautiful, this Canaanite prostitute preaches to them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Zion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth, belief, preach it. Canaanite, prostitute, who is this woman? And here's what's very beautiful about 8, verses 8 to 11, this little sermon. She quotes the law. She quotes Deuteronomy 121, 128, Exodus 1421, Numbers 2123, Deuteronomy 7, 8, Exodus 15, and a direct quote from Deuteronomy 439. I know for me I sit in the jurors box and I look across the room and I just write people off. God can never actually be working in that person's life. I mean, I've worked in an office environment, some of you have, and and I've experienced that person that everyone loves. They tell the best stories and they're really funny. The problem is their jokes are crass and their stories are all about them and all the great things they've done. And I write them off and I just say, God will never work in their lives. And yet Rahab begins to show us that possibly God is working in someone's life even when we can't see it. Now in 8 to 11, doesn't it feel like she's buttering them up? Like she's saying all the right things. She's talking about how great their God is. Like she's actually going somewhere with her sermon. She is, actually. Because in verse 12, she says, Now then, please, swear to me by the Lord. That's a trigger word. In Hebrew, that's hasad. Hasad to me by Yahweh. When you hear someone say, Now please, swear to me by the Lord, they're pulling out a contract. And they would like to talk to you about this contract. And that's exactly what she does. She starts off this contract language. The New American Bible Commentary actually recognizes this as Rahab's covenant, Rahab's contract with the spies. And she goes down the list and she does everything that you're supposed to do for a contract. Recognition of a deity, verses 8 through 11. Statement of terms agreed on, verses 13. Meaning, hey, save my people. I saved you, you saved me curse and place if both break the covenant, verses 14a and 20, and a sign of the covenant, the scarlet cord or the scarlet thread, verses 18. She pulls out the contract, and we all know what. Deuteronomy 7 says no contract with any Canaanite. And there's a reason. Because the Canaanites were pretty bad people. We know historically, we see it inferred in Genesis 13, that list of things that they did were terrible, including human trafficking and human sacrifice. And God had had enough. And he didn't want the Israelites to go into Canaan and to intermarry and to share their practice. He wanted to get rid of them all. So, maybe the spies are just trapped. Maybe after they're done, they they go back to the the Israelite camp and say, well, I just need to find myself a good Israelite lawyer and and see if he can get me out of this contract. And the Israelite lawyer would have looked at it and said, well, yeah, this is a problem, but oh, oh, there is a law about a rash oath, and you can get out of it. You just need to go sacrifice two female goats, and you're done. You're out. But they don't do that. Well, maybe they go to Joshua, and Joshua says, I'm sorry, guys. I'm not getting you out of this little promise you made with her. You know God said you shouldn't do this. But they don't do that. Maybe. Maybe, Kevin. Maybe God doesn't really care about this. Maybe you're making way more of this than he ever did. Except God brings up that law. Over and over again The sin of Achan One of the elements of the law Is you were not supposed to take any Precious possessions from the Canaanites And Achan did And God judged him So God was actually very strict about this law So why Does she Get Out of it It's as if The spies It's as if Joshua It's as if God sees something that we don't see. It's as if God knows something that we don't know. God knows. Hebrews 11.31. It says in Hebrews 11.31, By faith, by faith, Rahab, was saved, did not perish with those who were disobedient. What it means is that, though there was the law, Rahab still had faith in God anyway. What it meant is, when she's standing out there with all of her kin, and she looks out, and all of their hearts melt as the Israelite army comes towards them, and God's judgment comes towards them, she says, essentially, I see... God's judgment marching towards me, and I still believe He'll save me. I see God's judgment marching towards me, but I still believe He'll save me. That's what God sees. That's what God is looking for. And that's what we have to see. It's so easy to look on the outside. I know if I'd been sitting in the juror's box, right? And I looked across the way and I saw Rahab walking down the street. I would have written her off. I wouldn't have said, well, there goes a woman who will clearly make a contract with God so that God will redeem, redeem her and save her. No, I would have said, nah, nah she'll never call out to God to save her. I would have dismissed her. But if I dismissed her, I would have had to dismiss her son, Boaz, her grandson, Jesse, her great-grandson, David, and eventually Jesus Christ himself, who came to die for her sins and my sins. It was by faith that Jesus ratified later on when he came to die and rise again. But here's the deal. As I was thinking through this sermon, I realized something. I am preaching to the choir. You guys already know this. You already know that people are more than what you see. And the reason you know this because for the last four years you've been teaching me this when I first came to Skillman forget the person on the other side of the room I'd look into my own mirror and I would see a spiritual criminal and I couldn't see anything else and you refuse to let me stop there because God doesn't Stop there. Skillman taught me that God is working in my life no matter what I see in the mirror. John Keever and James Johnson and Woody Glenn and the list goes on and on. You refuse to let me see just the spiritual criminal. But a man redeemed by God not because anything I've done but because he loves me that much in spite of his law. You've already taught me this. And guess what? Disability? the world needs that. A year ago, I shared with you guys about being a blessing. This is how you've been uniquely designed to be a blessing to the world. There's an entire world that needs to know that it's more than what they see in the mirror. That God could still work in their life. You can do that. That's what you do well. That's what Skillman's always done well. Take that to the world. And the gospel will be preached, I promise you. In fact, there might be some of you today, who who, maybe this is your first time at Skillman, or you've only been here for a couple months, and you kind of feel like Kevin four years ago. Let me tell you right now, this is a good place to be. Because these people here will show you that there's more than what's on the outside. Thank you, Skillman, for what you've given to me and what you've given to Jenny. We will never be able to repay it. Let's pray.